Section 6 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 6 the Canvas of 1854, The Great Senatorial Contest, Visit to Kansas and New York, The Cooper Institute Speech, Beautiful Incident. For the five years succeeding the Canvas of 1848, Mr. Lincoln was but little engrossed in public affairs. He practiced his profession with diligence and success adding both to his fame as a lawyer and to his fortunes. His interest in politics, though lively, did not draw him from the bar. But the repeal of the Missouri Compromise suddenly aroused him for fresh endeavors. Illinois was once more afield for the battle of freedom, and the bold leader, who before had led the van of the host arrayed against the slave encroachment, was not deaf to the call for his good right arm. The murmuring drumbeat of liberty sounded its alarm throughout the land, for the hour of danger to free institutions had indeed come. The old compact, won by the Herculean efforts of Henry Clay, and which stood like the sea dike of Holland, to keep off the all-devouring flood was to be rent asunder, and the beautiful land reclaimed forever to free labor was to be given over to darkness and death. All the lion in Lincoln's nature was aroused. What were peace and fame and fortune when the country was assailed by treachery and cunning device at the command of slave breeders? The warrior put aside all his own interests, girded on his armor and went forth, like Peter the Hermit, to arouse his people to a sense of their shame and loss in permitting the holy sepulchre of freedom to be invaded by the southern Muslim and northern Tartars. The desperate political struggle of that year was measurably influenced by his power, and the crowning victory, which gave Illinois her first Republican legislature, and made Lyman Trumbull her United States Senator, it is conceded was mainly due to his extraordinary efforts. The editor of the Chicago Tribune, a personal friend of Mr. Lincoln, thus sketches the Illinois campaign of 1854. The first and greatest debate of that year came off between Lincoln and Douglas at Springfield during the progress of the State Fair in October. The State Fair had been in progress two days, and the capital was full of all manner of men. Hundreds of politicians had met at Springfield, expecting a tournament of an unusual character. Several speeches were made before, and several after, the passage between Lincoln and Douglas, but that was justly held to be the event of the season. Mr. Lincoln took the stand at two o'clock, a large crowd in attendance, and Mr. Douglas seated on a small platform in front of the desk. The first half hour of Mr. Lincoln's speech was taken up with compliments to his distinguished friend, Judge Douglas, 
and dry allusions to the political events of the past few years. His distinguished friend, Judge Douglas, had taken his seat as solemn as the Cock Lane ghost, evidently with the intention of not moving a muscle till it came his turn to speak. The laughter provoked by Lincoln's exordium, however, soon began to make him uneasy, and when Mr. Lincoln arrived at his, Douglas's, speech, pronouncing the Missouri Compromise a sacred thing which no ruthless hand would ever be reckless enough to disturb, he opened his lips far enough to remark, a first-rate speech. This was the beginning of an amusing colloquy. Yes, continued Mr. Lincoln, so affectionate was my friend's regard for this compromise line, when Texas was admitted into the Union, and it was found that a strip extended north of 36 degrees 30 minutes, he actually introduced a bill extending the line and prohibiting slavery in the northern edge of the state. And you voted against the bill, said Douglas. Precisely so, replied Lincoln. I was in favor of running the line a great deal further south. About this time, the speaker continued, my distinguished friend introduced me to a particular friend of his, one David Wilmot of Pennsylvania. Laughter. I thought, said Mr. Douglas, you would find him congenial company. So I did, replied Lincoln. I had the pleasure of voting for his proviso in one way and another about forty times. It was a democratic measure then, I believe. At any rate, General Cass scolded honest John Davis of Massachusetts soundly for taking up the last hours of the session so that he, Cass, could not crowd it through. Apropos of General Cass, if I am not greatly mistaken, he has a prior claim to my distinguished friend to the authorship of Popular Sovereignty. The old general has an infirmity for writing letters. Shortly after the scolding he gave John Davis, he wrote his Nicholson letter. Douglas, solemnly. God Almighty placed man on the earth and told him to choose between good and evil. That was the origin of the Nebraska Bill. Lincoln. Well, the priority of invention being settled, let us award all credit to Judge Douglas for being the first to discover it. It would be impossible, in these limits, to give an idea of the strength of Mr. Lincoln's argument. We deemed it by far the ablest effort of the campaign, from whatever source. The occasion was a great one, and the speaker was every way equal to it. The effect produced on the listeners was magnetic. No one who was present will ever forget the power and vehemence of the following passage. My distinguished friend says it is an insult to the emigrants to Kansas and Nebraska to suppose they are not able to govern themselves. We must not slur over an argument of this kind because it happens to tickle the ear. It must be met and answered. I admit that the emigrant to Kansas and Nebraska is competent to govern himself, but, the speaker rising to his full height, I deny his right to govern any other person without that person's consent. 
The applause which followed this triumphant refutation of a cunning falsehood was but in earnest of the victory at the polls, which followed just one month from that day. Mr. Douglas replied powerfully and at length, but it was not possible to parry the force of Lincoln's logic and facts. The vast multitude who listened to this debate dispersed to all parts of the state, the majority to advocate the cause of freedom. A similar passage was tried at Peoria. Quote, A friend who listened to the Peoria debate informed us that, after Mr. Lincoln had finished, Douglas hadn't much to say, which we presume to have been Mr. Douglas' view of the case also, for the reason that he ran away from his antagonist and kept out of the way during the remainder of the campaign. End of quote. In speaking upon the subject of slavery, it must not be presumed that Mr. Lincoln confined his argumentative efforts to the upper portion of Illinois, where his ear would most frequently meet with applause. He carried the war into the central portions of the state. He illuminated the precincts of benighted Egypt. Here the population was largely composed of emigrants from slave states. Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina and he urged upon them the slavery issue with all the vigor of his understanding and all the arts of his true eloquence. The political feeling of the state was completely revolutionized. For the first time in her history, a freedom-loving majority ruled her legislative halls and opposed the retrogressive policy of the Democratic administration at Washington. The election for United States Senator came on. When the anti-Nebraska Democrats united on Mr. Trumbull, the opposition invariably casting their votes for Mr. Lincoln. Mr. Lincoln feared that the anti-Nebraska Democrats, though adverse to Mr. Douglas, would relinquish Judge Trumbull for some third candidate of less decided anti-slavery views. And, to prevent this, he readily sacrificed himself and, by personal persuasion, induced his own supporters to vote for Trumbull, who was thus elected. Quote, Some of his, Mr. Lincoln's, friends, on the floor of the legislature, wept like children when constrained, by Mr. Lincoln's personal appeals, to desert him and unite on Trumbull. It is proper to say, in this connection, that, between Trumbull and Lincoln, the most cordial relations have always existed, and that the feeling of envy or rivalry is not to be found in the breast of either. End of quote. In 1854, the anti-Nebraska, afterward Republican, party offered to Mr. Lincoln the nomination for governor. He declined, saying, quote, No, I am not the man. Bissell will make a better governor than I and you can elect him on account of his democratic antecedents. End of quote. Thus, again, did he permit his love for his party and the principles involved to overcome any desire which he may have had to be their standard-bearer and leader. In the first national convention of the Republican Party, which met at Philadelphia, June 17, 1856, the name of Abraham Lincoln was conspicuous before the convention for the vice presidency, standing second to Mr. Dayton on the informal ballot 
and receiving 100 votes. The choice of that convention having settled upon John C. Fremont and William L. Dayton for its candidates, Mr. Lincoln took an active part in the ensuing canvass. The Republican electoral ticket of Illinois was headed with his name, though, in the event, the Democrats carried the state by a plurality vote. The great senatorial contest of Illinois, between Mr. Douglas, on the one hand, and Mr. Lincoln on the other, which gave rise to those debates which have become a distinguished part of our national political history, took place in the summer of 1858. Mr. Douglas, by his refusal to support the Lecompton fraud, had earned for himself the enmity of the administration. But his strength, inside and outside of Illinois, was still enormous. In consequence of his defection from the then openly avowed pro-slavery policy of his party, and the commendation which he had earned from many Republicans, he was probably stronger than ever before. Of course, under these circumstances, it required a man of no ordinary ability and of no ordinary hold upon the public regard to contest the state of Illinois with the little giant. As a Republican candidate for United States Senator, and one of less equivocal record with regard to the absorbing issue of slavery or freedom in the territories, Mr. Lincoln was thought to be the opponent upon whom the freedom lovers of Illinois could best depend as their champion. He was, accordingly, nominated by the Republican State Convention, which met at Springfield, June 2, 1858. In the projected tournament of debate between the rival candidates, Mr. Lincoln was the first to fling down the gauntlet in a brief note under date of July 24th, requesting an arrangement to, quote, divide time and address the same audiences during the present canvas, end of quote. The challenge was not accepted with much readiness, but the terms were at last agreed upon and the places and days of meeting specified. It will be impossible to give anything more than a brief synopsis of these celebrated debates. It was, generally, the verdict of the press and of the country that, in every encounter, Mr. Lincoln held his ground firmly against his talented opponent, and it is very probable that the majority accorded to the former the meed of victory. A discerning writer wrote of this celebrated word duel and the contestants. In perhaps the severest test that could have been applied to any man's temper, his political contest with Senator Douglas in 1858, Mr. Lincoln not only proved himself an able speaker and a good tactician, but demonstrated that it is possible to carry on the fiercest political warfare without once descending to rude personality and coarse denunciation. We have it on the authority of a gentleman who followed Abraham Lincoln throughout the whole of the campaign that, in spite of all the temptations to an opposite course to which he was continually exposed, no personalities against his opponent, no vituperation or coarseness ever defiled his lips. 
His kind and genial nature lifted him above a resort to any such weapons of political warfare, and it was the commonly expressed regret of fiercer natures that he treated his opponent too courteously and urbanely. Vulgar personalities and vituperation are the last thing that can be truthfully charged against Abraham Lincoln. His heart is too genial, his good sense too strong, and his innate self-respect too predominant to permit him to indulge in them. His nobility of nature, and we may use the term advisedly, has been as manifest throughout his whole career as his temperate habits, his self-reliance, and his mental and intellectual power. This picture presented the man as he appeared and acted. Another writer, well acquainted with his subject, wrote of the great campaigner, as he was then called, as follows. In manner he is remarkably cordial, and, at the same time, simple. His politeness is always sincere, but never elaborate and oppressive. A warm shake of the hand and a warmer smile of recognition are his methods of greeting his friends. At rest, his features, though those of a man of mark, are not such as belong to a handsome man. But when his fine, dark grey eyes are lighted up by any emotion, and his features begin their play, he would be chosen from among a crowd as one who had in him not only the kindly sentiments which women love, but the heavier metal of which full-grown men and presidents are made. His hair is black, and, though thin, is wiry. His head sits well on his shoulders, but beyond that it defies description. It nearer resembles that of Clay than that of Webster, but it is unlike either. It is very large, and, phrenologically, well-proportioned, betokening power in all its developments. A slightly Roman nose, a wide-cut mouth, and a dark complexion, with the appearance of having been weather-beaten, complete the description. In his personal habits, Mr. Lincoln is as simple as a child. He loves a good dinner, and eats with the appetite which goes with a great brain. But his food is plain and nutritious. He never drinks intoxicating liquors of any sort, not even a glass of wine. He is not addicted to tobacco in any of its shapes. He never was accused of a licentious act in all his life. He never uses profane language. On the evening before the debate which took place at Freeport, Mr. Lincoln was in company with a few friends, when it was remarked by some of them that, if he cornered Douglas on the question of the Dred Scott decision, his opponent, Douglas, would surely take the bull by the horns and assert his squatter sovereignty in defiance of that decision, and that will make him senator. That may be, replied Lincoln, but if he takes that shot, he never can be president. Was there not something like a prophecy in this careless rejoinder? Judah Benjamin of Louisiana, one of the ablest of Southern senators, afterward Secretary of State in Jefferson Davis' cabinet, complimented Mr. Lincoln very highly, 
in the course of a speech wherein he had occasion to review this celebrated series of debates. Speaking of the queries propounded by Douglas to his opponent, and the answers they elicited, Mr. Benjamin observed, It is impossible, Mr. President, however we may differ in opinion with the man, not to admire the perfect candor and frankness with which these answers were given. No equivocation, no evasion. During the campaign, Mr. Lincoln paid the following noble tribute to the Declaration of Independence. Now, my countrymen, if you have been taught doctrines conflicting with the great landmarks of the Declaration of Independence, if you have listened to suggestions which would take away from its grandeur and mutilate the fair symmetry of its proportions, if you have been inclined to believe that all men are not created equal in those inalienable rights enumerated by our chart of liberty, let me entreat you to come back. Return to the fountain whose waters spring close by the blood of the revolution. You may do anything with me you choose, if only you heed these sacred principles. You may not only defeat me for the Senate, but you may take me and put me to death. While pretending no indifference to earthly honors, I do claim to be actuated in this contest by something higher than an anxiety for office. I charge you to drop every paltry and insignificant thought for any man's success. It is nothing. I am nothing. Judge Douglas is nothing. But do not destroy that immortal emblem of humanity, the Declaration of American Independence. The election day at length arrived. The popular vote stood for the Republican candidate, 126,084, for the Douglas Democrats, 121,940. For the Lecompton candidates, 5,091. But the vote for senator being cast by the legislature, Mr. Douglas was elected, his supporters having a majority of eight on joint ballot. Notwithstanding the result, the endeavors of Mr. Lincoln during the debate had caused an immense increase in the Republican vote and his party had no reason to regret that their choice of a leader had fallen upon him. Mr. Lincoln made several visits into other states, after the close of the senatorial contest and before the opening of the campaign of 1860. He made several speeches in Ohio the following year, and also visited Kansas, where he was received with great enthusiasm. In February 1860, he was in New York, and made a speech before the Young Men's Republican Club at the Cooper Institute, which made him many friends in a quarter where they were already numbered by the thousand. It was the finest oration, as such, pronounced by the eminent speaker up to that time, and commanded much attention from men of all classes. A most touching incident occurred, probably during this visit, which is thus narrated by a teacher at the Five Points House of Industry. Our Sunday school in the Five Points was assembled one Sabbath morning, when I noticed a tall, remarkable-looking man enter the room and take a seat among us. He listened with fixed attention to our exercises, and his countenance expressed such a genuine interest that I approached him and suggested that he might be willing to say something to the children.
he accepted the invitation with evident pleasure, and, coming forward, began a simple address, which at once fascinated every little hearer, and hushed the room into silence. His language was strikingly beautiful, and his tones musical with intensest feeling. The little faces around him would droop into sad conviction as he uttered sentences of warning, and would brighten into sunshine when he spoke cheerful words of promise. Once or twice he attempted to close his remarks, but the imperative shout of, Go on! Oh, go on! would compel him to resume. As I looked upon the gaunt and sinewy frame of the stranger, and marked his powerful head and determined features, now touched into softness by the impressions of the moment, I felt an irrepressible curiosity to learn something more about him. And, when he was quietly leaving the room, I begged to know his name. He courteously replied, It is Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. That was just the place where the man of great heart loved to go. We have no doubt that he enjoyed that touching recognition by the children of his power over them more than any ovation which the public could have tendered. End of section 6